I invite you to turn your copies of God's holy and inspired word this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. As it was noted at the beginning of the service, we have uh, finished 1 Peter. Uh, and my plans are for us uh, to start working through Ecclesiastes. We um, are experiencing some things in our lives right now that are really challenging us. And it is a time where we really, I think, need to be uh, encouraged by God's word and how to live wisely in the midst of circumstances that we don't like, um, for some that they fear, for some that they hate, uh, for some that they like. The reality is we cannot allow the things of this world to determine how we live. It is God and his word, and not just the explicit things that he says, but in the wisdom that he teaches us to exercise. And so, Lord willing, we will uh, begin to look at Ecclesiastes in a few weeks. But I wanted to take a couple of weeks in between for us to kind of refocus ourselves on who we are and to do that by looking at our name. And so this morning, we are going to begin by looking at Grace Covenant, by looking at where the covenant of grace is first issued. And so Genesis 3, this morning, we will read from verses 8 through 15. What I want you to do, however is also keep the passage that we read from Romans 5 as part of the assurance of pardon. I want that to remain on the forefront of your mind as we read Genesis 3, 8 through 15. This is the word of God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, well, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us these words, a record of a historically defining event that we were not present for to directly observe but one where we were present by way of covenant representation. 
And so help us, Heavenly Father, to hear these words in a fresh way as we contemplate what we did in Adam and what you have done in Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, why, why take a few weeks to reorient ourselves according to the name that we have given to this church? Why is that important? What's in a name? Right? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. One of the most famous lines in Western historical literature that express a very powerful notion and express it in such a, a short and succinct manner. What is in a name? Is a name important? Why does it matter that in this soliloquy from this young girl who finds herself in love, why would she take time to reflect upon this boy's name? Well, as we know, there is a war between these two families. But why is that important? Because names and identity go together. Well, why is that important? Well, because identity and values go hand in hand. What do people value? They will attempt to identify themselves by. Well, why is that important? Well, because values determine actions, and actions reflect values. Well, why is that important? Well, because the culmination of values and actions within a group of people is what determines the culture of that people. Well, why is culture important? Well, because culture is what ultimately defines a community. Quite often, it is very easy for the identity of a group of people to not be shaped and formed by what they say their values are and become way more reflective of the actual actions of a community. A name is very important. And though sometimes we want names to not be definitive for either what we hold ourselves accountable to or what others hold us accountable to, the reality is this. The name Grace Covenant for this church, if it is not a reality that we understand, if it is not a reality that we embrace wholeheartedly, if it is not a reality that we consciously reflect upon, then the covenant of grace upon which our name is based will not actually be 
that which forms our values and our identity and our actions and our culture. Our name is not just something to put on a sign so that people know what church they're attending. It is a way of expressing what we believe is extremely vital and necessary for us in terms of who we are and what we are doing and for how we interact with those who are outside these walls. What is in a name? Everything. And though sometimes we may want to be able to say that a name isn't important, it is. Everything is bound up with a name. And so what is the significance of our name, Grace Covenant? What is the significance of this for our identity, for our values, for our actions, for our culture, for us as a community? Well, this passage in Genesis 3, which is this first place that we see the covenant of grace being um, brought into history through, through God, is, is a place that becomes definitive for what God is going to do for the rest of history. And make no mistake, what God is doing with this provision of the covenant of grace is he is defining his purposes. And he is defining our identity. This passage comes right after the beginning of Genesis 3, where we see this first introduction of sin into history. Where Adam, who had been tasked to be the high priest of the Garden of Eden, and he was tasked to guard and to protect that as holy space, we see him fail. And the promise, the pledge, the covenant that God had made with Adam back in Genesis 2, that if you obey me, and if you do what I call you to do, if you do what I empower you to do, then you will be uh, drawn into a higher level of blessing, a blessing that will be finalized, that will be made complete. And what will happen is this blessing will not only be for you as an individual, it will also uh, be for everyone who will come to you from you by way of ordinary generation. It's what we call in theology the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Do this, and here's the blessing that you will get. And you will get it for you, you will get it for your bride, and you will get it for your children. Don't do it, and you will receive curse. And you will receive a curse for you, you will receive a curse for your bride. You will receive a curse for your children. This is how God structures history. This is why Paul in Romans 5 is unfolding that passage the way he does around the headship of Adam and the headship of Jesus Christ. Now, as we come into our passage, what has happened 
is that Adam has failed in his role uh, of, of high priest there in the Garden of Eden. His wife has taken fruit and eaten. He has taken fruit and eaten. And the reality is this. They have chosen to put God at a distance, to embrace his good gifts while rejecting him in the process, and then embracing his enemy over him. They have embraced the enemy, they have rejected the Lord, but they still want all of his goodness and his blessings. Does that sound familiar? And by that, I don't mean the world out there. Does that sound like your heart? It sounds like mine. As we come into this next portion of the text, however, we have an extremely... Just take it off? All right. We have an... Is it not working? Pulpit's on. Thank you. All right. What has happened is we read in the text that it's in the cool of the day. This is a heavily debated passage, and my goal here is not to make you question the word of God, but the translators have chosen to take the Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit, and translate it as cool. I don't know if that means that they're saying that the spirit is groovy or what's going on. But this word here in Hebrew, ruach, is the same word that is used in Genesis 1 where it says that the ruach was hovering over the waters. This is the spirit. And, and what they have done is chosen to translate it as the cool of the day, trying to express the idea that Adam and Eve, you know, in the garden have fellowship with God. I take a different position in that the word should be translated spirit, since it's ruach. And that the idea here is that the Lord comes to Adam and Eve in the spirit of the day. Or another way of saying it is in the day of the spirit, or as we hear it said so often throughout scripture, on the day of the Lord. Adam and Eve have broken the covenant. And by nature of what a covenant is, it now requires assessment. And that assessment is not something that Adam and Eve do on their own. The Lord comes to bring assessment to how they have done in the covenant. This is a judgment day. It is a lowercase j judgment day. And so God comes to render his judgment. That is what is happening here. And so let's look and see how the different participants are responding to this judgment day. We begin with Adam. And what we notice is in his first response to sin is that there is an awareness of it. And the awareness of his sin brings about fear. And his fear leads him to hide he knows that he broke the covenant he knows that he is guilty and he experiences something that he had never experienced up to this point up to this point he has been innocent up to this point he has been created in the in the in the image of god in in knowledge righteousness and holiness our catechism says 
he now is experiencing something new. He becomes aware that he is naked. He is on display. His guilt and his shame are real. And it brings about fear. And it leads him to try to hide. When God comes into the garden, and I tried to reflect this in the inflection with which I read, he's not saying, Adam, where are you? God's not confused. God's not lost. God, it's not that God can't see Adam. He comes like so many of us as parents who know this language and know this inflection. Where are you? When you know your child has broken a rule, and rather than just come and slam them, we use questions to try, and you may not even be aware that this is why you do it, but we use questions to try to soften the blow as we come to them. Now, and you, you, you will know this if you think about yourself, because there are times when you don't come to them with a question, you just come firing with both barrels, right? Because you're not trying to soften the blow in those moments, all right? So we're not perfect, but... In Adam, we see this first response to sin, awareness, fear, hiding. God calls him on it. And in his second response, what we see is his blame shifting. Now, here's what's interesting. He doesn't just blame Eve. He doesn't say, well, Eve... He doesn't say, my wife. He says, the woman or the wife you gave me. If you hadn't given her to me, I wouldn't be in this situation. And guess what? Is Adam wrong? No, technically he's not wrong. Did Eve eat the fruit first? Who does Paul say is responsible? Adam. He's not wrong to point to her. She played a really big role. But what makes it wrong is the way he is trying in his fear, in his awareness, to hide from responsibility for what he has done in his participation in what has happened. Are you starting to understand yourself a little better right now? Husbands, are you starting to understand why you so naturally want to point your finger. Except for Les. Les was perfect as a husband. No, I'm joking. But do you start, are you starting to see your own heart here? Adam points the finger, and he's not wrong to do so. But he is wrong in pointing his finger at God. Now let's think about this for just one moment. Adam had been tasked to guard and to protect the holy space of the garden. He did not do that. He didn't do that with the serpent. He didn't do it with his wife. He didn't do it with himself. But have you ever thought about what could Adam have done? Yes, he sees this woman that he is in love with 
right from the poem in Genesis 2. This is flesh of my flesh. This is someone he is excited about. He is stoked about having this wife. He now feels complete where he was feeling completely incomplete. He loves her. He is not indifferent towards her. And he watches this one who completes him, whom he loves, do what God had forbidden. And when she ate, he had not yet eaten. And what could he have done? Did he have to join her in her sin? No, he was still in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. What if Adam, rather than choosing an earthly, fleshly love of his wife, had instead chosen to love her by saying to the Father, she broke your word. Pour out what is due to her on me. But he didn't. Instead, he chose to defend. He chose to participate with her in her sin. He chose to remain connected to her, even if that meant connected to her in sin. And so not only had they chosen the serpent over God, he chose his wife over God. It is so easy for us to join in with people in their sin because we are afraid of standing apart from it, but then blaming them for why we are there. And so what do we see? That original sin that took place with Adam and Eve and Eve in the garden is now expanding. It's growing. It's increasing. Let's look at Eve. Because what's interesting is that when Adam says, it's the woman you gave me, notice that the Lord doesn't correct Adam in that moment. Now, maybe he did and he didn't record it, but that's not what he records. What he records is, well, then looking at Eve and saying, okay, so what did you do? What was your role? What was your participation? And what does she do? She reflects what she sees in her head, and so she tries to run and to hide and to avoid responsibility and blame shifts and points to the serpent. Do you see why, men, it is so vital for us to be leading our families well, not in making demands of our families, but by showing love and sacrifice? Because whether we like it or not, or whether the world likes it or not, the reality is the leader in the home tends to reproduce himself in those in whom he loves. And people will follow, they'll reflect, they'll embody what they see. And so she does that. And she points to the serpent. Is she wrong? Not exactly. By all accounts of the beginning of Genesis 3, the reason she started looking at the fruit the way she was is because it was suggested to her from outside of her. And that brings another really important point here. You and I will sin 
And sometimes we will sin because something outside of us has influenced us, but that doesn't take away our responsibility in the sin. Sometimes you can point at someone and say, they sinned against me. Or you can point at someone and say, they led me into this. Or you can point to someone and say any number of things that are accurate. But they don't change the fact that you are still guilty, that you are manifesting your desire to run and to hide and to avoid responsibility. And so you blame shift. Now, one of the things that's really important, and we'll, Lord willing, talk about this in the class on understanding and managing emotions biblically, is that when someone sins against you, there is a proper emotional response to that that is negative. And it is important to be able to identify the source of the negative emotional response. But not to blame, but to understand. So that when you go to Christ, you go to him in the right way. Because if you only blame someone who maybe is responsible for hurting you, you never heal. Because that's not the right way to respond when someone sins against you. So what do we see with Adam? That original sin in the garden is increasing. What do we see with Eve? Her original sin in the garden is increasing. More and more sin is now pouring forth where there had been no sin at all. And what's interesting here is though we don't see the serpent's reaction to what God is saying to him, if we recall, the serpent is the original rebel. The serpent is the one who rebelled in the heavenly places. He is the one that out of pride and out of a desire to be his own ruler, determined to try to dethrone God. And in the process, led others into his rebellion in the heavenly sphere. And now has continued that rebellion on the earthly sphere. And the result of his original rebellion is that sin is increasing. It is growing. It is getting larger. It is getting bigger. It is sweeping more things up into its wake. And so sin is growing. Sin is increasing. And as we watch the serpent, as we watch Adam, as we watch Eve, what we now see in history and in the way history will continue to unfold from this point forward is that sin is real, sin is destructive, sin sucks things into its wake and it grows and it grows and it grows and it increases and it increases and it increases in you in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, in this world. Sin is increasing, it is increasing, it is increasing. And yet what is the promise and the hope of God to us in the midst of this increasing sin? Where sin increased, grace abounded. 
Do you see how much grace is exhibited here by God in even listening to what is being said? He's told them, if you do this, you will surely die. They have done it, and they haven't died yet. Because he is withholding and refraining from carrying out the death sentence that they deserve. And he is listening to them. He is allowing them to sin even to him as they are trying to come into grips with themselves. And his grace is on full display by giving them the opportunity to do that. But then that grace becomes very specific. And what he says is that I will give you a new Adam. And I'm going to give you a new Adam who will love his bride, not by joining her in sinning along with her, but joining her in her sinful condition by taking her sin upon him. And that enemy of the serpent and that enemy of the flesh and that now that enemy of the world is an enemy that your champion will conquer at great cost to himself. And he will come. And yes, he will deliver a head-crushing blow, but he will receive a blow in the process. And what we have here is this first preaching of the gospel where Adam and Eve had decided to side with the serpent over God God says, I'm not going to let you go. And I'm not going to let you stay sided with the serpent. I will side with you even though you have rejected me. And I'm going to send you a champion that will bring you back to me. And what Adam could have done, the second Adam will do. And that is why Paul arranges all of history in Romans 5 around the Adam who sinned, the Adam who was righteous. And beloved, what this means for you and me is that in this first preaching of the gospel, what you will notice is it comes within the context of a curse. Genesis 3.15 is God's response to the serpent where God is cursing the serpent. And yet, in the context of curse, what we are told is that's where salvation will be found. Can you not see Christ just coming into display through this? That as Christ would go to the cross and as he would, he would receive that blow from the serpent and as he would receive the blow from his father because of taking our sin upon himself and as he would die, he would be raised from that death. That death would not hold him down. And within the context of him dying on the cross for your and my sins, that's where we find our salvation. And that's where we find the most heightened expression of God's grace for us in giving us his demerited favor, free, where the only obligation 
is to receive what he is doing. And so what we see here is not only the grace of God, but we see grace being given to us in a very specific form, and that is the form of a promise. It is the form of of a pledge. It is the form of commitment. It is what we call covenant. The grace that is on display is a grace that is enshrined in a covenant so that God places the trustworthiness of his name and where God places the trustworthiness of his righteousness, he puts it on the line. And the reason that we do not despair in the midst of the ever-increasing sin is because the grace that is abounding is the grace that is promised and pledged and therefore is not temporary and it cannot be taken away. God has put himself on the line in order for us to rest in his grace in the midst of ever-increasing sin. And the most beautiful way that I think about this for myself is in that first movie of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and yes, I know the movie is not the book, the scene that I'm going to describe is not like the book. I used to get real persnickety about that. I don't care now. But in the book, our main protagonist, Frodo, has uh, been stabbed by these ring wraiths. If you don't know any of this, just, uh, I'm a nerd. And he's dying because of it. And so this elf queen, or, or princess, takes him, is going to take him to her father so that the father can heal him. But the ring wraiths are all around them. And they are pursuing them, and they are trying to finish the job that they started. And as she is racing to her father to bring this this person healing, she gets to the very edge of their kingdom, which is a river. And the river is very still. It's very quiet. It's not very deep. And she rides out into the waters. And then she tempts the ring race who have stopped at the edge. Come get them. But as she does that, through her powers, she causes this little creek to become this rushing river where the waters are rushing so hard, so strong, so powerfully that the shapes of horses take Take on, or the horses take on shape as the waters come and they are loud and they are powerful and they just wash out the ring wraiths completely. Where sin is present and where sin is actively seeking to destroy, where sin is increasing, the grace of God is super abounding so that it completely overwhelms the sin and the evil that is there. And that's what Paul means by the superabounding grace. Yes, sin is real. Yes, it is growing. But it is overwhelmed by God's grace to the point that it is decimated. Beloved, that for you 
is experienced now in having the penalty decimated, having the power decimated. What we are waiting on is for the presence to be gone. And so this covenant of grace that God promises, where he pledges himself, where his son comes and loves his bride by taking her sin upon himself and dying for her to give her new life, is a promise, it is a pledge. And therefore, God is saying, I will do this. I will be faithful to myself. I will be faithful to my promises. I will be faithful to my purposes. I will be faithful to you, my people. And what this means for us, beloved, is this trust that we have in God in his pledge of grace is that we are to begin and to continue to grow and to mature in embodying his pledge in the way that we deal with ourselves, in the way that we deal with others in the church, the way that we deal with those outside these walls. That we are part of a promise. We are part of embodying God's faithfulness to people who sin against us. And so what is in a name for grace covenant? Are we doing this? Is the culture of this church reflective of this promise of God? as he works that promise out with patient endurance, not expecting us to be something that he's not made us to be, but him patiently enduring with us as we still continue to sin against him. Is that the patient endurance that we are able to manifest to ourselves as we continue to sin and struggle with our own sin within our lives? Is that the way we are loving our families? Is that the way we are loving our neighbors? Patient endurance, not expecting people to love us perfectly, but instead, because we've been loved perfectly in Christ by God, embodying that to those who still sin against us. And are we persevering in this love as he perseveres in his pledge? Faithful in embodying this, not just once or twice, but every time someone sins against us, every time we sin against ourselves, every time we do that next thing where we self-sabotage, do we live in the guilt and shame of it? Or do we take it to Christ and allow him to heal us again so that we will persevere in preaching the gospel even to ourselves, let alone embodying that gospel to those around us? Are we embodying his perseverance, his patient endurance? Beloved, right now, you and I are being tested in this in a way that we never have up to this point in our lives.
And I don't say that to be dramatic. I say that to try to help you understand the seriousness of the challenge that is before you to persevere in the patient endurance of the faithfulness of the covenant promising, covenant keeping God. Can we continue to embody the covenant of grace even in the midst of the way things seem to have gone so sideways for us in the last year? Our name, Grace Covenant, our community, our commitments, our values, our actions, our culture. Are we a place that truly embodies the reality that where sin is increasing, that grace is abounding? Well, I want to say I think it is. But I think we're also getting a little tired. And so let's renew who we are in Christ as those who have received this covenant of grace, that we may embody this covenant of grace so that indeed in every place where we are as individuals as families and as a church that where sin is increasing because we are there embodying Christ that grace may be abounding let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you don't that you don't just make a promise and leave it to us to trust that you make a promise and you commit yourself in such a way to that promise that where the grace is already not deserved, the grace enshrined in a pledge is even further. Something that we do not deserve and yet brings you joy and delight to give us. And so, Lord, help us to reflect as a church upon this blessing that we have in the covenant of grace and the way we have chosen to define our identity, our values, our purposes, our mission by calling ourselves Grace Covenant. May our worship services, our Bible studies, Sunday school, Lord, when you allow that to happen again, our youth group time, our children's ministry, our support of local and foreign missions, may all of it, Lord, be characterized by the covenant of grace. And use it, Lord, to bring yourself so much glory and to fill our hearts to overflowing with so much joy. And Lord, give us the confidence to trust in our hero and to die to who we used to be in Adam and to live more and more according to who you have made us to be in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you.